Hi, I'm Yaakov Katz, and welcome to a new episode of the Jewish People Policy Institute's Inside Analysis of the State of Affairs in Israel and the Jewish World. On today's episode, we look at Israeli resilience, as well as the presidential elections in the United States. What does Donald Trump's victories in the primaries mean for America and Israel? And what are we seeing playing out right now within Israeli society that can help us understand what the future holds for when this war is after? To help us analyze some of this, I spoke with Saul Singer, an old colleague of mine at the Jerusalem Post, and the co-author of the new book, Genius of Israel, which he wrote together with Dan Senor. I then talk up with two of my JPPI colleagues, Shmuel Rosner, a journalist, polling expert, as well as Dr. Sarah Hirshhorn, a new hire at JPPI and an expert in Israel diaspora relations about the U.S. elections and Israel diaspora ties. Have a listen. Saul, thank you so much for joining the JPPI podcast. It's great to have you on with us. Great to be with you, Yaakov. So you and Dan uh, Sinor, your brother-in-law and co-author, have written another fantastic book, which I have greatly enjoyed. Actually, I'm going to bring it over to get assigned uh, by you, Dan, uh, by you at least, maybe Dan at another point, but Genius of Israel. And it's basically a follow-up to your first bestseller, Startup Nation. But I'm curious on a, on a couple of things, but let's start with this book comes out just after October 7th, right? Right. Israel's not looking like such a genius at that time, but it still is telling us a story of how Israel can emerge from this very difficult time and how there is actually an optimistic horizon to look forward to. Yeah, well, it's a book about Israeli society, uh, and it, most of it was written uh, before 2023, before this terrible year uh before the protests which divided us so greatly um but we actually had about six months to incorporate material that's related to the protests so we did address that yeah. but then the book was published on november 7th one month after the war started um so what we actually saw though israel went from the depths of division to the heights of solidarity within hours. Uh, all those people who were protesting immediately went down to the front or they uh, started volunteering and the whole country mobilized in an incredible way. And so the book has ended up inadvertently being a sort of explanation of what we're seeing now, the incredible, you know, I, I don't think really any society could have mobilized the way we have in terms of the civilians, um, and that it happened exactly after one of the most divided times we've ever been in is absolutely incredible. It does say something about society, and it shows how, unfortunately, I think it, to me it's always showed two things. One is that we needed a war to come back together, right, which was uh, unfortunately what happened. But this, and, and people were saying this, right, in the run-up to October 7th and throughout the division of the judicial overhaul, how, you know, the only thing that can bring us back together is war. But as you said, how society really steps up and fills in the vacuums that are created oftentimes by the government. So so what are those, in, in the book, you guys spell out a bit, what are these ingredients? What makes Israel unique, you know? 
I, I love the having Thanksgiving dinner every once a week, but there's the youth groups. I mean, g- give us some of those examples. Sure. Well, basically what got us going on this book was, you know, Dan Senor, my co-author, is sitting in New York City. I'm sitting in Jerusalem, and we're talking all the time. And, you know, I start hearing from him about this sort of crisis of uh, of despair, in a way, in the United States. There's something called deaths of despair, um, which is the combination of suicide, alcohol abuse, of the opioid epidemic, all of that together is being called deaths of despair. And it's uh, a tremendous problem and a growing problem in the United States. Um, you have, you know, teen suicides have just gone up Incredibly, I mean, there's a hospital in New, G- in New Jersey, uh, which in 1982, there were 250 admissions to the emergency room for you know, suicide-related uh, things. Uh, by 2010, that had gone up to 3,000. And by 2022, it was up wow. to 8,000 wow. at this one hospital. And in Israel, uh, we have a third of the OECD, of the rich country average of teen suicide. We have a quarter of that of the United States. And it's the same when it comes to deaths of despair. We are the lowest among all the rich countries. So then and we, course, opioid is not, I mean, you know, we, I used to, we used to write these stories in the Jerusalem Post. And I remember when the whole opioid thing was going on in the United States. And we, I, I said to a reporter, what's the situation here? And it's tiny. You know, it's, yeah. it exists, but nowhere close to the levels of what you see in America. Yes, in terms of, of deaths, uh, actually, opioid use uh, is unfortunately growing here. But the, yeah. the in terms of the very serious uh, addiction and deaths that we see in other places that that we haven't seen. Um, and there's as we started looking into it, there's so many incredible there's so many indicators, very uh, solid indicators of the health of Israeli society. You know, one thing is what's called the epidemic of loneliness. And loneliness, it turns out, according to studies, is very bad for your health. It's like 15 cigarettes a day smoking habit. That's how bad it is. And Israel, if you look at our life expectancy, which is obviously a measure of health, we're ninth in the world. But we're also a year above countries like UK, Germany, Denmark. We're four years above the United States in life expectancy. And we have a great health system. That's right. But it's not just that other countries do. You know, we think that it also has to do with our mental health, with our societal health. Um, And the the last big factor, there, there are really many, but one huge one is our fertility rate. Mm -hmm. It's very high. And what this means is that this country is young and growing. You know, people think about the fertility rate just in terms of, you know, the the amount of population. Uh, But there's a huge difference between the rich countries of the world where there's an average fertility rate of 1.6, which is well below the replacement of 2.1 
which mathematically societies are aging rapidly and they're shrinking. Yeah. Their population. And, and, and we're, we're not, right? Yeah. We are young and growing. Right. And think about the difference in the energy of a society. There are even studies that show that the same young person in an older society is less innovative than a young person in a young society. So, so, but explain to me something, Saul. I mean, all these, all, all, everything you just described, which is very positive, right, was all there before January 2023 when the judicial overhaul began, right? Now, obviously, it didn't come out of a vacuum. It was after five elections in the span of three and a half years. And as I say often to our American friends, you guys do this once every four years. <laughs> Look at how bad it is. Imagine five times in three years. That's not does not that doesn't foster love between people, right? To say the least. But it, we saw this incredible division within society, despite everything you just said. So even if you have those ingredients, and even if you have those amazing social strength, it doesn't make you, you know, immune to the problems that can rip people apart. Well, exactly. It's made us immune to a lot of the worst sicknesses of modernity, but not to all of them. And mm -hmm. so we have polarized politics like everyone else. We didn't escape that one. And um, so the difference, though, is, I would say, is that we have these kind of reservoirs of solidarity that we have to build on, that we have to fall back on. I mean, think about the the, the slogan that's like on everyone's lips, on every billboard, every electronic sign in the country is Yachad Nenatzer. Together we will win. Right. And there's this instinctive Israeli feeling that we have to be together, that we have to build our solidarity. That doesn't exist in other countries because you can't aspire to something that you've never had. You know, Americans don't aspire to solidarity or UK or French or, or whatever, because it's just not on the on the radar. It's not something that they've ever had or, or can imagine. Here, we know what it's like and we know how to build it. When we don't have it, we want to go back to it. It's something that we know that we need also to be able to prevail, I think, to a large extent. And I, I would also say that the, the one of the big lessons of October 7th, and, and I'd like to hear what you think, is you know, we we kind of almost did it to ourselves, right? We 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 ripped ourselves apart. We made ourselves vulnerable and weak, and we enabled an enemy, in this case Hamas, to be able to come in between that wedge and take advantage of the situation. They they probably would have done it anyhow, but we weren't in a good place when this all came down on October seventh. So is 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 when you when you think about genius of Israel and and the book and the lessons, like what what is what are we supposed to take away now in the aftermath of now we're we're talking 111 days into this war what is what is the takeaway for, for from the war perspective well i think we all are in shock and concerned and um that we know that we have work to do in the future to get out of this and we also know that if we lose our solidarity, that really is the most dangerous thing that we can do. Mm -hmm. Because as you basically said, we're the only ones who defeat us. If we stay together, nothing can defeat us. 
And and again, Israelis just instinctively know this. But what's really, I think, the whole part of this is uh, two things. One is, you know, the judicial protests. Um, you know, people may have thought that this is left against right. It wasn't really. It was 80% of the country against 20% of the country. It was basically the broad center yeah. that believes in liberal democracy and in democracy, uh, a Jewish and democratic state. Um, and that group just, in, you know, a lot of it was led by the high-tech sector. And the high-tech sector was completely apolitical before. They were almost another country. I mean, they, you know, they were looking at the whole world. They were, you know, kind of citizens of the world. And they they just ignored politics here. It wasn't their problem. And suddenly just came completely out of the woodwork to kind of leadership of this movement. Because what happened is they saw yeah. uh, that you couldn't take liberal democracy for granted. So, you know, that mobilization, and that same organization that you had on October 6th, was immediately transformed into this incredible mobilization of society uh, uh, to fight both, you know, on the front and at home. Um, so I, I think we have tools that we can build on. Like, I want to mention a chapter in the book that's uh, about this word called kibush. Mm-hmm. Uh, kibush is loosely in English, maybe bonding, but that doesn't capture the kind of emotional weight of the word. It's like a central part of Israeli society. Is you know even from in school classrooms. You know, I I grew up in America, and you know, the classroom is not a particular unit. But here, if the classroom is not mikubash, if it's not united, the teachers are upset, the parents are upset, the kids are upset, and they don't care about you know the grades and all that. If the if the classroom isn't mikubash, everyone's upset. Yeah. And that's because it's such an important value. And that's even in the classroom, you know, and then of not course, to mention society. Right. Then you have the youth movements and the note. And then of course, most in the army where, you know, bringing people together into a unit is absolutely essential. So we like to do this. We're good at it. We believe in it. And th- this is not the only tool that we have, but it, basically where society that's good at making connections between people. And that's, I think, a big explanation for our societal health. It's a good explanation for our societal health, and I hope it's an explanation that will lead us out of the uh, out of this war and be able to take with us to not slide back to where we were on October 6th and to use this momentum and the positive energy that you just so beautifully described to keep us going in the in the right direction and not to fall back. So I want to thank you, Saul. Thanks for the book. It's great. I'm coming over for uh for to get to get it scr- signed. <laughs> and uh and we appreciate your time and being with us. Thank you. Sure, just to say that it's it's available now in English in the US and UK. Uh also there's an audiobook that Dan uh himself read. Um, but it should be out in Hebrew in the summer. Uh we don't have an okay. exact date, but you know, I'm looking forward to that. Great. Thank you, Saul. Thanks, Echo.
So that was Saul Singer talking to us about his book, Genius of Israel. And uh, I want to start with uh, you, Shmuel, you know, talking about just listening to Saul, listening to his description of what he expects to happen on the day after this war and how Israel will supposedly come together once again because of those ingredients. I mean, that really is one of the big questions, right? We tend to think about the day after in terms of what's going to happen in Gaza, who's going to rule Gaza, what's going to be the apparatus in charge of Gaza. But we also have to look internally inside Israel. You've been looking a lot at that also in terms of polling on the political level, but I think also on a societal level. Yes, I'm, you know, you caught me in an optimistic mood, and I'll tell you why. Um, er, earlier <laughs> this morning... It. That's it, we could, we could stop the podcast now. We're good. <laughs> <clears throat> no, the, the details are important here, because earlier this morning, there was a, a press conference by one of Israel's most impressive heroes, of of the current war, uh, singer, songwriter, and actor, Idan Amedi. He was released from the hospital today. Right. And, and, and he, you know, he presented himself to the public and answered questions and, ma- and made a speech that was so moving that many Israelis were watching it. I, I know it for a fact, were, were tearing up. It was almost... Unavoidable. He was talking about himself and about his soldiers. He he serves as a commander in the field. He was injured. Several of his men, of his uh, you know the the people he was in charge of, were killed during the war. So he spoke about himself and about his emotions and about his injury and the long way to recovery and about Israeli society and the need for us to be united and the need for us not to despair. And it was almost impossible not to believe him and not to feel that with such people, we do have hope. Um, So, you know, it's a a wonderful day to hear such message from, from Soul Singer, but also from the men and women in the field uh, Israel's soldiers are the ones who give me courage and hope for the, you know, for for the coming weeks and months, which I'm sure aren't going to be uh, aren't going to be easy. And and today, Dana Medi, many of our viewers might know him because he um, he um, he acted in the the uh, TV um, many TV episodes of Fauda. He's right. uh, one of the stars of Fauda. Uh, so for him to appear in such way and to talk in, in such manner to all Israelis will, was really a heartwarming and encouraging sign. Well, I'm glad we have you on a, an optimistic day today, Shmuel. That's always good. Sarah, I do want to talk to you. I mean, you know, you, you well, first of all, welcome to JPPI. It's great to have you with us. Uh, you're, you're a new hire, so we're... We're glad that you're with us and focusing a lot on Israel diaspora relations. And you wrote a wonderful book that I recommend that people check out about the history and looking at the American Jews who moved to Israel and helped settle uh, the Israeli community's settlements in the West Bank, a.k.a. Judea and Samaria. Uh, but we're not talking about that today. What I, what, what I do want to hear is, you know, obviously there's something unique happening this inside Israel right now, right? With this, the, the 
you know, the best way I look at it, like the social cohesion, right? The is the way we would say it in Hebrew. And it's something that is it, you know, you're looking at it through the American lens also. Do you see it as something that's unique to this country? Oh, Sarah, you're muted. I, no. Yes, I, I, I heard Saul say that, you know, really solidarity is something that's alien to um, the United States and to many other Western countries. And I think that to some extent that's true. Um, Israel is built upon various mechanisms that allow it to come together, whether that's uh, the army or schooling or other um, other ways that uh, encourage social inclusion and um, and to bring heterogeneous communities together that don't really exist outside of Israel. So uh, in some ways, I think Israel is quite unique. And um, while I'm a little bit more pessimistic than Shmuel at the moment, I'm sorry he didn't, you didn't catch me on an optimistic day, um, I do hope that the solidarity that uh, has existed in this uh, time of Yachad Ninatseach that we will all, you know, win together will continue um, beyond the emergency phase of the war. I think that remains to be seen, whether this is a moment in time where the country has realized it must come together, um, sometimes in part because the central government is failing to provide certain services and um, programs to help many parts of the country that are affected by this war. Um, so civil society has pitched in in a way that I have never seen here before. Um, but will this continue uh, in the months and even years ahead, I think remains to be seen for me. So I want to shift gears for a moment and I want to, uh, you know, you're already pessimistic. So I'm going to take Shmuel from his optimism for a second to his pessimism. And I want to talk about the, the presidential elections and the Republican primaries for a moment. So we just saw uh, Donald Trump come out on top in New Hampshire. It was pretty obvious that that was going to happen. The last real contender is Nikki Haley, but she doesn't really stand a chance. It seems that the nomination is going to go to Trump and we're going to have a Trump Biden showdown. Shmuel. This is interesting for a multitude of reasons, but I want you to look at it. And I, you know, Shmuel to our listeners who might not know does regular commentary on us uh, the United States and politics and relations, of course, with Israel on the public broadcaster here on Khan uh, Channel 11. But I want you to talk for a moment about what Israelis, how we should be looking at this, because this is this is interesting. It's, it's going to be a repeat of 2020. But things have changed and the war is also changing a lot of the context right now. Right. Well, I think Israelis should look at it with trepidation, as most Americans do. Uh, I I read the polling from recent days, and I, I get the impression that most Americans aren't pleased with the fact that uh, there will be a repeat in 2024 on what they had in 2020. Obviously, if these are the two uh, the two candidates, uh, many Americans will have to choose to pick one of them because these are the choices choices presented uh, before them. But it's not as if most Americans are pleased with with these options. I think for Israel, this is an, an alarming situation for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, because Israel needs, needs, truly needs a vibrant and robust United States of America. The, the, the power of the United States, the idea. The, the the energy of the United States, the ideological influence of the United States, these are all components in Israel's strength 
in in the in the Middle East and around the world. It's part of our uh, a national security strategy to rely on this positive uh, on this superpower that is a positive force in the world. And if the United States is seen as weaker or despaired or isolationist, these are not things that are helpful to Israel. Beyond that, there are, there are the, the difficulties that Israel has with, with both candidates. We, we know that the current president, Joe Biden, has his differences with the current Israeli government. Of course, we, we cannot tell for sure if by next November, the government, the government and the issue are going to be the same. But we do see... There are, there are difficulties for Israel to get along or convey into democratic leaders. That's one side of it. The other, the flip side of it, is that uh, Donald Trump seemed to be uh, in in a somewhat isol- isolationist mood. He doesn't seem to uh, to convey much interest in world affairs. In many of his rallies, he, he constantly talks about the uh, the need for the United States to withdraw from world affairs and from world troubles. And you know, when when America pulls out, uh, there is a vacuum and someone is going to go into this vacuum. And uh, from a geostrategic viewpoint, this is not a good thing for Israel to happen. So Sarah, I'm guessing you also have some thoughts about uh, what's going on with the presidential election right now and the the Biden-Trump repeat as it seems that that's what we're headed for how do you think israelis well i mean we know we know that the american vote is likely to still be the same as it's always been right that the Repub- the, the most american jews will will vote for for the pre- for biden they'll vote for the democratic candidate especially now that it is trump and not someone else what do you uh what are your feelings First of all, I'm really interested in what's happening with the millennial vote in America, because I'm not sure that actually we can count on things going the same way that it went in 2020. Just before we came on the air, I saw a very uh, disturbing poll that was released by YouGov and The Economist polling American millennials um, between January 21st and January 23rd. And apparently it seemed to think show that uh, some, you know, half of the millennial population in America thinks that Israel is committing a genocide uh, in Gaza. And if these, uh, if this polling is correct and continues, you know, leading up until the presidential election, um, I think that will create a great deal of skepticism amongst millennials of turning out for polls for Joe Biden. I don't know if they're going to turn out for someone else. I don't think they're going to be voting for Trump. But uh, if, you know, the margins are slim enough that the millennial vote is going to matter, um, and including the Jewish American millennial vote, because a recent JPPI poll showed that Jewish millennials um, particularly those who are from the denominational streams of reform and conservative Judaism, might be the ones that are associated with the most liberal tendencies that have more problems with Joe Biden's policy than the overall Jewish American vote, um, you know, could, could be determinative in this election. I also think there's a huge gap right now between um, where Israeli positions are on the, on the uh, resolutions of the situation in Gaza and what's happening in the United States. Something like only 5% of Israelis agree with the Biden administration's general position that the Palestinian Authority or some other um, you know, constellation of Palestinian leadership should rule Gaza after uh, after this emergency phase of the war continues. Um, you know That is going to create a, a huge uh, sense of cognitive dissonance between where the Israeli public is on these, on these questions and where uh, large parts of the American public is. 
last thing I should say is that I don't think we should discount the importance of the Muslim vote in swing states in America right now. And they've expressed their you know, extreme displeasure with Joe Biden's policies right. in Gaza. Um, and some have even said that they'll vote for Trump, um, you know, as much as it's going to cause damage to their own constituencies. So uh, if that truly happens on, on in November, uh, things may look quite different than the last time around. Thank you for joining us today. You can find all our episodes where you get your podcasts. Please share widely and give us a five-star review. We will see you back here soon.